morning. Welcome once again to By Grace Community Church, whether you're joining us here in person or you're joining us via the live stream, we're glad that you're here to worship with us. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open up to the book of Galatians. This is Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia, and we're going to continue our verse-by-verse journey through this book. We're going to begin and end today in the third verse. This is the word of God. May the people of God give ear to his word. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, as we gather here this morning, it is a joy, it is a trembling joy that we come before you and call you Father. We do so based solely on our relationship with Jesus, that you as his Father are then our Father. By the union we have with him, we share in his bounty, which is to see and know you as our Father. Lord, we ask that in the time that is before us, that you would teach us as fathers teach their children. Lord, that you would comfort us as fathers can comfort their children. God, that you would meet with us and bring grace and peace to us as we study and listen and learn more about or are refreshed and reminded about these two pillar benefits of our union with you. Come and meet with us, we ask, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. All God's people agree. Amen. 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 We ended up last week talking about what it means that the gospel is not about what we do for God. It's about what God has done for us. And as we wade into this letter, as we continue to listen to the apostles' teaching and continue to think about what it means that we have a gospel, we have a message, a message of all truth, of all comfort, of of lasting and eternal peace, it is important for us to remember that Paul writes this letter specifically because truth was under attack. The message itself was being mutilated by adding what does not belong and by removing what must belong. So as Paul opens his letter... We saw last week that Paul had no commendation, right? Paul had nothing good and positive and pleasant to say at the outset of his letter. In fact, it was strange because as we read a variety of the opening of Paul's letters, there were things that were different in each church's opening letter. 
And it's different at the beginning because the churches were different. The people were different. They needed a different encouragement and praise. Today being Father's Day, I want to remind the fathers or the would-be fathers in the room that you should cultivate the craft of praise for your kids. Your children need their father's praise. They certainly need their father's correction and protection and guidance and guardianship and and all those other things we might discuss. But it is essential for fathers to know the importance of praise. But here, in this letter, you'll see clearly in the verses that come that Paul is writing this for correction, not praise. It's about rebuke and not pleasant tidings. So there's no commending to be done here. The church is under assault and the people appear complicit in allowing these false teachers to gain strongholds in the teaching of that church. But there is something that remains constant here that is in all the others as well. If you go back and read the beginning on your own sometime this week, I encourage you, open up all 13 letters from Paul. They're all ordered in a row in your Bibles. Read the opening. Read the beginning of each of these letters and you will find often word for word, sometimes pretty close, this same opening. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It sounds like such a great religious opening, right? It just sounds spiritual. Sounds religious. We got grace in there. We got peace. We got God, Father, Jesus. This is like pinnacle religious snoozing, right? Don't you just run right past it and go, all right, what's the letter about? As if this isn't exactly what the letter is about. Everything that will follow is tied to these two pillars of our Christian life. And the benefits that we have in Christ come by way of Jesus mediating peace to his people. On the eve of the crucifixion, read sometime the Last Supper discourse. Start in John 13 and keep going through 17. And you will discover that Jesus wanted peace for the disciples. He kept talking about it over and over and over again. My peace I give to you, he says. Not as the world gives, because it's not a peace from the world. It's a peace from outside the world that has broken into the world. And it comes not because of you. That peace comes by grace. On the basis of grace, it comes. Listen to Machen here. 
Machen says, in this Pauline greeting, quote, grace designates the undeserved favor of God and, quote, peace, the profound well-being of the soul, which is the result of it. You get it? In the, in the Christian gospel, these two things are fused together. It's an entanglement that you could never separate. Grace comes because God has favor on you out of the abundance of who he is. Not out of the niftiness or brilliance or even the sincerity of you or your efforts. Grace is what Paul wants the Galatian churches to hold on to. It's what he wants every church to hold on to, every Christian in those churches to hold on to. Because God's peace is otherworldly. But it only comes from the Father because of the mediating work of the Son and the application of the Holy Spirit. The message of the gospel is Trinitarian. Thoroughly Trinitarian, as we will see going forward. But we have these two big words, right? We have grace and we have peace. Praise God that we have grace and peace. But let's begin to define some of these words because as we go through this letter, their definitions are the battlefield. What Paul is fighting for here is that the people of God would understand the blessings of God through the work of God given to them. So I'm going to give you two definitions of grace. One comes from the great B.B. Warfield. B.B. Warfield simply says that grace is free sovereign favor to the ill-deserving. Grace is free Sovereign favor to the ill-deserving. Or if you want to put it in the last century, you can go with J.I. Packer. This is the one I most commonly use. But J.I. Packer says in his book, Knowing God, that grace is mercy contrary to merit. Mercy contrary to merit. To merit. If you grew up in the church, you're probably familiar with grace's simply unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. I like Packers best. Grace is mercy contrary to merit. Because most of the time when we think about grace, especially spiritual grace or the grace that God has and gives, it's usually thought or understood that we are neutral and God gives us good things as favor. God has favor on those who haven't earned it yet. It's like your boss giving a paycheck you never worked for. But is that really the essence of grace biblically? 
Isn't biblical grace based on God giving you favor despite the fact that you've stolen from the business every day your whole life? It's mercy contrary to merit. If we really understood the holiness of God, the brokenness of our own hearts, not just everybody else's heart, but our own, we would understand that God having favor on us is as preposterous as a boss knowing you're stealing every day from the cash register and giving you a Christmas bonus anyway. It's not just an undeserved paycheck. It's a counter-deserved paycheck. In the heavenly realms, Jesus has, through his obedient life, stored up every blessing possible, every blessing that the covenant of God offered mankind, Jesus has secured in his righteous life. But he also pays the debt. He bears the curses of the covenant. Every curse that mankind deserves. So when God has favor on us, it's not just that we're neutral and he's great. It's that we thoroughly suck. And he's mesmerizingly merciful. Mercy, contrary to merit. Well, since I didn't pick B.B. Warfield's definition, I thought I should at least give you a good paragraph from him. So listen up. B.B. Warfield, in trying to help us understand what it means that grace is not natural for us, You guys have a list, don't you? You know what you call that list when you're not in church. And you know who's on it. And you know what they did and how they did it and when they did it and how often they did it. Or at least, you know, you have a sense of it. God doesn't have that list against any of his people. Because grace for us is unmerited. Vengeance that you desire might be merited, especially by some of the fathers we know of. Listen to B.B. Warfield. There is nothing in us or done by us at any stage of our earthly development because of which we are acceptable to God. We must always be accepted for Christ's sake, or we cannot ever be accepted at all. This is not true of us only when we believe. It's just as true after we have believed. It will continue to be true as long as we live. It's always on Jesus' blood and righteousness Alone that we rest. There is never anything that we are or that we have or that we do that can take his place or that take a place alongside him. 
We are always unworthy. And all that we have, all that we do, all that we have of goodness is always of pure grace. It's always of pure grace, Warfield wants us to know. We don't begin with grace and end by effort that could be pleasing. Does not mean we do not please the Lord. We do. But it is not the ultimate of his pleasure. That ultimate belongs uniquely, eternally, and solely because of Christ. So when we think about grace being this pillar that Paul wants for every church, for every Christian, we must understand that it's because the entire gospel is of grace that we would be rescued at all, liberated at all, is divine grace. An unbelievable mercy that runs contrary to everything we ever wanted when we were born. To everything we'd ever done before the Holy Spirit worked faith in us. And even now, we know of the reasons he shouldn't have grace on anybody else. Because we live with them, we work with them, we talk to them, we see them, hear them, watch them. But do we hear and see and watch ourselves just as closely? Now, some in this room watch themselves too closely. Striving for a perfection that will not be on this side of glory. So sometimes we hear grace and people can get frustrated. So sick and tired of needing God's grace. You don't say that out loud, of course. You're way too noble for that. And there are others of us who just flop on grace. We're like, we got grace, no problem. Easy peasy. And I want you to know that God's grace is big enough to contain both and everything in between. God's grace to us is so large, so massive, the whole earth can't contain it. Because it's generational after generational after generational. God's grace for us is not natural to us until. Somebody say until. Until Jesus makes us his. And in making us his, he begins to form us, mold us, craft us to be more and more like him. And then, and in that way only, grace can become normal and normal and normal, becomes a way of life, a lens by which you think and see a basis by which you might choose mercy for an undeserving. And then we have peace 
For those of you who love talking about grace, thinking about grace, peace might come as an afterthought. But there are others among us for whom grace is less fascinating and peace more central because of its presence in the stark departure from the past or because of its perceived absences in a desperate cry to receive it now. So when we begin to think about grace, we know that it's central in the character of God. But no more so or less so is peace central to the character of God. He has, after all, only one character. We see it in many ways, but that's about our finitude. Not him being some composite of many characters. But Jesus is given the title, the Prince of Peace. And how I long for that to be the rule of my heart. The rule of my mind. Jesus is not just offering an an unembodied peace. He is offering an embodied peace because he is himself peace. Sometimes I rail against bumper stickers on cars as if a sound bite could capture a thought fully or, or even decently most of the time. But I remember being a young Christian in college, seeing the license plate that said, no peace, no Jesus, no peace. No Jesus, have peace. It was pithier than that. But when we have Jesus, we have all peace. If we don't have the Lord, if we don't know the Lord, if we don't have a meeting of the Lord, then we will have a restlessness inward and outward that will overwhelm us. When you know Jesus, you will know peace. And then you might forget. And then you might wonder or doubt. But let's define peace, and I'll give you just one today. John Piper says, quote, Peace is confidence in the supremacy of God over all things. Peace is confidence in the supremacy of God over all things. Things there most often being understood as circumstances. I remember there was a connect a few months back where I was offering this definition of peace that Piper wonderfully gives, and I remember a conversation that Matt Hausman and I were having, and if you ever want to have a a great conversation, have a conversation with Matt Hausman. He loves the truth. It's one of his greatest attributes as your elder. But he and I were lobbying ideas back and forth and ripping it apart and putting it together and ripping it apart and putting it together. Sometimes people call it chopping it up. We were definitely chopping it up. And we both came away with a gratitude for this definition 
but also a slight apprehension that it might be incomplete. It, it might not capture the whole thing. It certainly captures a lot of it really well. But I think peace is so elusive to us that I wanted to spend more time in the Scripture, more time trying to, to weed through and work through. This is what systematic theologians do. We ask the question, what does the whole Bible say about a topic? I tend to be a little bit more of a systematician than maybe a biblical theologian. If you don't know those precise terms, it's okay. I love the Bible. Don't get me wrong. But in my study, I sort of worked through, hold this loosely, but I'm still in process, but I think this is grounded, and I'm going to give you some scripture to demonstrate it. I think there are three types of biblical peace. I think the Bible talks about peace specifically in, in at least three categorical ways. And let's be clear going in. When we talk about biblical peace, we are talking about something that is more than emotion. But it is not less than emotion. Human emotion is an embedded part of the Bible's dealing with peace. So I think there are three types of biblical peace. Here they are. First, I think the Bible talks about an inner peace, a psychological peace, the kind of peace that brings comfort and security within. Got that? An inner peace. I think that's the one that we expect to find, right? If you're studying the Bible, you kind of probably expect two out of three of these. And the first here is that inner peace. The second one is a relational peace. It's an interpersonal peace. The Bible talks about this interpersonal peace as a harmony with other people. And I want to draw that one as distinct from, but under the same category as, peacetime. The Bible's filled, especially if you're walking through these historical narratives over any body of time. There's always going to be conflict. That's why they're writing. There's always going to be a conflict. That's why God has to do something. When everything's peachy, God is doing that. But when we record the great events of our lives, there's usually crisis involved or conflict involved. We just spent a lot of time in Samuel, yes? How much of that book has conflict at its core? People doing the right thing, people doing the wrong thing, people wanting the right thing, people wanting the wrong thing. So when we talk about relational peace, it's easy for us to narrow it into peace in my marriage, peace in my home, peace at work. And, and we do this not because it's wrong, it's real. And it's ever so to be desired. But also, we forget about the wars raging in the world. Our comfort narrows our definition of peace, our, our privilege. I know we don't like that word these days. 
But there's a sense of that. There are parts of the world where their conflict that any kid wakes up to is, how do I eat today? What will be done to me today? So we talk about relational peace. I want us to broaden our vision of biblical peace. Not against peace in the home or peace in the marriage or peace at work. God wants those things too. But he doesn't want only those things. So when we talk about inner peace, psychological peace, we're talking about that inward reality. But that inward reality is also to express an outward reality, this relational peace. So when we think of peace, we have to think of something bigger than the absence of conflict. Because there isn't a complete absence of conflict yet. Man wars with man, yes? The invisible realm wars with the invisible realm. And the invisible war world realm also is at war with this realm, the visible and the invisible, waging war upon each other. So this relational peace is bigger than we might at first look for. And then, of course, if we stop and we say, all right, we got it. We got inner peace, we got outer peace, good to go. We forgot somebody. And I'm in a pulpit, so you already know the answer. Who did we forget? Peace with God. So I submit to you that the Bible is also very interested in and describes well spiritual peace. Now hang on. Before you write down spiritual peace, I want you to understand I'm using it as Paul uses it. Not as CNBC might use it. Spiritual here does not mean immaterial. Spiritual here is talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul's not talking about immaterial things when he says the word spiritual. You'll hear him, I think it's... uh, In a letter he writes to Corinth, he talks about things being spiritually discerned. He's not saying, think of it without substance, no matter, no atoms involved. He's saying it's something that the Holy Spirit, that's the third member of the Trinity, we do not worship a dichotomous God. Three in unity, not two. The Holy Spirit has peace that he gives. That's the spiritual peace we're talking about. It's not just peace between God and mankind. It is that, but it's not only that. It's also why Jesus tells the church before they're fully formed and authorized that it is better that he go. You remember this moment? On the eve of the crucifixion, you remember this? Jesus is with his disciples and they're starting to panic because he said he was leaving. He was gonna go build some house, his dad's house. 
And he kept going on and on about like, have peace, have peace, have peace. I give you peace, I'm your peace. Abide in me, live in me, dwell with me. It's good, it's fine, it's gonna be great. And he does so and then sweats blood (laughs) over his anxiousness. I think the disciples were tapping into something very real and palpable. This was their last night on earth with Jesus before he becomes the risen Christ. Peace I give to you. My peace, not as the world gives. I'm going to tell you something crazy, and then you're going to go years from now, Pastor Kevin was on to something. Most of us give peace to others based on their works. We give peace to those who have earned it with us. Now, some of us are a little extra peaceful, and I'm not saying this is right. I'm saying this is wrong, but stay with me for a second. Most of the time, we are at a truce with someone because they stopped doing whatever it was that put us in conflict. Does that sound like deep unity to you? It's the most superficial of unities. So when Jesus says, I don't give peace as the world gives, part of what he's saying, not all of what he's saying, but part of what he's saying, is that you give mercy to those who deserve it. In your mind. I'll give you the easiest example. You guys ever watch those home renovation shows? Come on, you know what I'm talking about. You guys have HGTV, I know you do. And there are these shows where every once in a while, or maybe the whole show is based on, here's this lady in your town who does unbelievable things with absolutely no help. We're going to build her a house. Why do they do the 10-minute promo about the lady, the sick grandmother who takes in 19 kids because the streets are bad and she, she'll make it work. Why do we love watching that show, seeing her get a house? Because she deserves it, right? Isn't that why Sears gets in on it? Home Depot starts donating appliances and lumber. Sure, they get tax write-offs for that, and they should. But at its core... The opening of those TV shows are always trying to answer the question you might not have the courage to ask out loud. Why are you doing this for her? Why does she get a house? I could use help. Who here couldn't use five grand today in cash? I'm not giving it out, so don't come to me. (laughs) Wouldn't your life be made easier if somebody gave you tax-free 500 grand? Or built you a nice, big, awesome house? When we think about peace, we usually think of it in the lens of conflict ending. How many of you have a sibling? How many of you know when you are in truce mode... As opposed to, 
everyday life mode. Excuse me, let me reverse that. How many of you are at everyday truce mode until she, and then that's the story you're going to tattletale on, right? Mom! Mom's favorite words. Wait till your dad gets home, right? Aren't these the stereotypes? What are we talking about? We're talking about peace as truce. Truce is good. Biblical peace is greater than that. It includes that. Of course it does. But biblical peace has in view an undeserving element. This is why Jesus is saying to his people, love your and then your parents always give you the speech, your sister is not your enemy. Yeah, and this minute, <laughs> I don't have a sister, you don't have to worry. You understand what I'm saying? That coworker, that frenemy, you're going to have a good day with your frenemy at school, you're going to have a good day. If you are in Christ, then deserved outpouring of wrath is not your purview. Now justice might be if your authority position demands it. Hi dads. But when we think about grace and peace, we cannot understand biblically one without reference to the other. All right, so I made my case. Let me defend it. Colossians 3, verse 50. I need you to understand there could be like 400 of these, okay? One per category. The first, Colossians 3, verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. You see, gratitude just wiggled its way in to our definition of peace. Right? This is what is true. This is who we are. This is what we are called to believe. That Christ has of such great glorious substance in himself. That the peace he gives is shelter against the storms. But it doesn't rule your circumstances. It rules your attitude towards and your responses in those circumstances. That's a completely different world than the kind of peace the world wants or offers. The world offers conditional peace. It's sort of like compounding interest, if we're honest. The peace the world has to offer you is constantly being reevaluated every second, every minute, every hour, every day. It's like clockwork or compound interest. But Jesus says in Colossians 3 that the peace of Christ rules inwardly, it rules within us. And that indeed is because we were called into this body, this church, his bride. 
and be thankful. Maybe you will find peace as you pursue gratitude for the union you have with Christ. Maybe what the other people's opinions of you don't matter so much because you are so highly favored in Christ. So that's the inner peace, the psychological peace, the peace within that gives comfort and security. Here's the second one, Romans 12, verse 18. If possible, so sometimes this won't be possible, so far as it depends on you, conflict always has two sides, you're only one side, live peaceably with whom? All, every, come on, can we get a little realistic? So much as it depends on me, I won't smash her with the toy I'm holding unless she looks at me funny. <laughs> so far as it depends on you, you cannot maintain peace perfectly with others because they have a will and you are both free to act upon the will that you have. If you are in Christ, your will has a strength and a resolve that you've been given that you spend a lifetime learning about. Yeah. This is why we say grow in grace. Grow in your understanding of your union with Christ and the Spirit empowers and strengthens, renews and refreshes. So can you have inner peace, the first category, while you're engaged in circumstances of conflict, not of your doing or wanting. Yes. And sometimes you're given a peace that passes understanding. It doesn't mean there's never an inclusion of understanding. It means understanding gets you this far, and the one you have is even greater. It reaches deeper, and it goes farther. It pushes you higher. The third category, Romans 5.1. This is on our scripture memory chart, so why don't you guys give it to me? I see you looking at the screen. Do it anyway. How do you have peace with God? How do we have peace with God? Because you do good things. Because you sincerely desire to honor whatever spiritual being there might be in the universe. Through your trust of the universe's plan for you. I know it sounds funny here. It is not funny out there. That is the default culture you live in. The only personal being outside of creation and inside of creation who knows what pure and eternal peace looks like is the one who gave us that peace. That's an exclusive claim. You better get used to the word exclusive. 
Because Paul sees one gospel, one central and exclusive view of reality and believes that conform to it. When we talk about having peace with God, we should do so with honey on our lips and a belly full of surprise. Because we weren't born at peace with God. We were born arch enemies. In the story of the Bible, the arch villains are the ones with whom we should identify most in the war of good and evil. We have peace with God. And it comes because of and through Jesus Christ, our great high priest and mediator of the covenant blessings to the people of God. So therefore, if Jesus gives us peace and it's inner peace and he gives us peace and it's relational peace and he gives us peace and it's spiritual peace or Holy Spirit empowered peace, then we should have a smooth, clean, easy life. Oh, you don't get to grumble, do you? No, we shoot heretics around here. I got you. We shoot the truth at them. The Christian life is secure. You know that? Amidst all the upheaval, amidst all the waves crashing around you and the chaos of the middle of any day, in the middle of any week, in the middle of any night, our whole lives change in an instant and we live in an age where everybody's worst change is put on media for us. We know more about each other's great highest best moments and more about each other's worst circumstances. Instantly. We need to remember the Christian life is secure. But it's not storm free. Nobody promised you a storm free life. In fact, he promised you storms. Through many trials and tribulations you don't know that verse, Google it later. The other thing that's happening here in verse 3 quickly is that Paul is expounding the beauty of the deity of Jesus Christ. When he says at the end of this, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, what's happening here is that Paul is ascribing to Jesus a divine character, a divine status a recognition that he is God. And he's doing it by separating Jesus Christ from creation and siding him with God the Father. And it's presented to you more casually than you've ever considered. This is just ordinary. He literally opens all his letters with this. And in their day, it required no further explanation. Because it never seemed out of place to them. There's no conflict within the Trinity. The deity of Jesus Christ is so deeply rooted in the life of the early church 
that it became a central, though obvious, truth. It was included so naturally in the opening of nearly every letter Paul writes. Christ is God. Listen to Herman Bavink as he meditates on this idea. God the Father has reconciled his created but fallen world through the death of his son and renews it into a kingdom of God by his spirit. You want it again? God the Father has reconciled his created but fallen world through the death of his son and renews it into a kingdom of God by his spirit. What's the application of this tiny little obvious yet central verse? That because of Christ, because of our union with Christ, we become peacemakers who bring peace to others by bringing Christ to others through our words and our deeds. What we say should bring Christ to others. What we do should bring Christ to others. Remembering, and we'll hit this next, next week harder, but all glory goes to God. Amen. Yeah? That's the gratitude part, right? It's a whole lot of G's here. Follow the alliteration. All glory goes to God. Grace and peace he gives to us. Grace and peace he gives to us. And he does so without measure. Unless you want to measure the righteous life and atoning death of Christ. And then I'm fascinated to know what your number would be. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we gather together in this place, that you have called us to hear your word. Father, we ask that by the power of your spirit, we would be doers of this good word we hear, that we would be speakers of this good word that we hear. And Father, may we tell the troubled by circumstance or self, that Christ gives them more than sin takes away. Our Father in heaven, may we believe anew and afresh that Christ has given us more than sin could ever take away. Father, we thank you and we give you the glory and gratitude that you deserve or at least try. Father, hear our joyful gratitude in the songs that we sing, but also hear the desperation of the conflicts that we find ourselves in with others and with ourselves. Father, give us the spirit because Jesus says it's better that we have him than that he walk among us, at least until he returns. Come, O God of glory, and give grace and peace to all of us, and teach us to share. We ask it in Jesus' name.